Lord, we're just saying how much we need you. And we are grateful and we are thankful that you're a God who is faithful. Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. And today, Lord, as we open up this incredible passage of Scripture, exalting who you are, we ask, God, that you would lead us, guide us, open up our hearts, open up our affections towards you now more than ever before, because, Lord, we need you. And, Lord, as we turn our face away from the horror that's in the world, help us to turn our face towards you. Lord, because you're the one who has it all under control, help us, Lord, to give you the praise and the honor and glory that's due your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today I have the best news I could ever tell you. I want to remind us of who God is. But how to tell it? I'm not eloquent and I'm not smart enough really to do it well. I need help in this matter. And so as I was meditating on this passage and thinking about it and praying about it, a thought came to my mind, and that was I vaguely remembered a sermon I heard a while back. I went online, I punched in what I thought would lead me to that sermon, and lo and behold, it was there. It was a message delivered by Dr. S. M. Lockridge. Now, I smile because of his name. His first name is Shadrach. You know where I'm going with this. His middle name is Meshach. I'm not making this up. And so to get us started today, I want to give us just part of his message. Do you know my king? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He is the absolute necessity of any spiritual religion. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible and he's irresistible. Isn't that wonderful stuff? Isn't that great? And that was only part of his message. But with that intro, let's open up our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 43. The title for our message today is, To God Be the Glory. Indeed, all the glory goes to Him. He alone is worthy of praise. And so we're at the end of Moses' first message in the book of Deuteronomy. And at the end of 
what would some call the historical prologue of a treaty that God is making with His people. That's what Deuteronomy is is, uh, organized as. At the beginning of this series, I pointed out that this book of Deuteronomy is laid out almost exactly like the ancient treaties that were very common in the time of Moses and when he lived. Treaties like this were made up of several parts. And the first part was an introduction as to who was to enter into this treaty. In this case, it was Yahweh, who is the suzerain, the vastly superior king, and Israel, who are the vassals, vastly inferior, imperfect, sinful people. When speaking of the inferior and imperfect and sinful, we have seen throughout this book so far, Moses reminding his people of their history, full of sin and failure, but Yahweh's faithful and loyal and sometimes tough love and kindness. Again, this part of the treaty is called the historical prologue, sort of a like, remember when sort of thing. A walk down memory lane where Moses lays out all the failures of the vassals and the faithfulness of the suzerain. If you were here last week, you remember that God through Moses predicted the entire nation was going to commit idolatry time and time again. And as a result, he was going to kick his covenant people out of his land and scatter them three sheets to the wind. But he made a promise. Many sons and daughters of Israel would come to their senses, they would repent of their sin, and the Lord would bring them back to his land, to his sacred space. I ended the message last week in the middle of Moses' message with the promise that the Lord would not forget the covenant that he made with their ancestors. Once again, the Lord declared his faithfulness and his mercy. But how would Israel know that the Lord would, beyond the shadow of a doubt, fulfill his promise to them in the distant future? Israel's history toward their king was filled with failure and sin and one episode of spiritual adultery after another. And by all rights, the Lord should separate himself from them, divorce himself from his wife and leave her alone, and God would be perfectly justified in doing so. But God is faithful, and God is merciful, and God is kind. And in our passage for today, Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 43, we will hear Moses recounting history again. Only this time, it's not Israel's failures, but Yahweh's glorious acts. This rehearsal is found in verses 32 to 40 of chapter 4. And then we're going to switch gears, and we're going to see a rule that Moses puts in place in verses 41 to 43. Moses set aside three cities of refuge so that if somebody accidentally kills somebody else, they can go there and seek protection. Remember what we said last week about the Lord's rules. And to enact them properly meant that justice was evenly applied to everybody, just like our praise report with Chloe. I mentioned last week that in our secular culture, we will never achieve justice because we've rebelled against the Lord and His ways. And besides, these rules are for God's people. And as we go farther along in Deuteronomy, we will find that the Lord's ways are given to His people, not to those who are not. And so let's begin by hearing Moses 
set things up, engaging their hearts and minds in verse 32. He says, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that the Lord God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to another, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. A grand and glorious setup indeed. Here's Moses, filled with wide-eyed wonder, inviting the people to comprehend what can't be comprehended. In essence, Moses said to them, okay, guys, go with me here. Can anyone at any time, anywhere from the day God created our first parents until today point to whether such a great thing has happened to us alone and to nobody else? Now, if Moses were to stop right there and leave us hanging, that would be cruel, wouldn't it? But what was it? What was the incredible thing that Moses was driving at? As we're going to see in these verses, it wasn't just one thing, it was two things. So let's see the first thing in verse 33. God came up close and personal to his people. He said, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Now, of course, what was Moses referring to? It was that time on Mount Sinai. Though many of those in front of him that Moses was talking to were kids back then, this was no doubt etched in their collective memory. I mean, if we were there, we would not forget the scene, would we? The mountain on fire, massive smoke clouds billowing up to the sky, the Lord thundering out them the word to them the words that they could understand. And who hasn't experienced? During a thunderstorm, you've got the, you got the lightning and then flash bang. You've got the loud thunder. Sometimes it scares us out of our wits, doesn't it? But nothing in nature held a candle to what the Lord did on the day he thundered out the Ten Commandments to his people. This was no mere loud sound. These were intelligible words that they heard. And the people were petrified. A couple of weeks ago, we caught a glimpse of the typical mindset of the pagans in Moses' day regarding how they experienced the gods that they worshipped. The deities were aloof. They didn't tell the people what it took to make them happy. And they were vengeful, make them angry, and they would inflict bad things on the worshiper. But it was a two-way street. See, most often, the people didn't want to be near the gods either. And so to have Yahweh come this close to his people and not kill them was unique. As one scholar put it, direct contact with deity was fraught with grave danger. Yet the wonder of wonders, the gap between God's holiness and Israel's rebellion and sin was bridged. This was ever a cause for reverent wonder in Israel. In other words, the relationship Yahweh had with his people was unique compared to all the other nations around Israel and the relationship they had with their gods. But in our culture, in our day, I fear things are a little bit different. I'm afraid that we see the high and holy one as a little too familiar. We know the prophecy of the coming Messiah. 
he would, not, he would look ordinary, not particularly one to stand out in the crowd. Isaiah told it to us this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, I praise the Lord for his first coming, don't you? His perfect life, for his all-sufficient death to take away our sin, for his resurrection and his current ministry right now. Now that he's ascended to the Father, what is he doing right now? What is Jesus taking his time, as it were, to do? What's so important? He's praying for us. Isn't that amazing? He's praying for us. And he's praying for us according to the will of God. But the enemy has convinced far too many in our culture that the exalted Lord Jesus is okay with anything that we do that we can picture him in any way that we feel comfortable. And too many of us, even those of us who claim to follow Christ, hold to the idea that everybody is going to heaven because Christ died for all sin. Many Christians hold to that view. That's called universalism. And that was condemned as a heresy a long time ago. So what have we as a culture done with the high and holy one? We've made movies like Oh, God, starring George Byrne. Or Bruce Almighty, starring Jim Carrey. We sing songs with lyrics such as, What if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us. But what would many of these same people who buy into these kinds of secular symbols of the Lord do if an angel suddenly appeared to them? I submit to you that they would never be the same again. But let's carry this a bit further. Instead of seeing an angel, what would they do if they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory? How would they see him then? How would they respond to him then? I don't think they'd make any more movies like I just mentioned. Well, guess what? One day, we're all going to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And I can guarantee you, he does not look like Jim Carrey, and he does not look like George Burns. And we will not refer to him as a slob like one of us. No, every one of us is going to take the knee, and every one of us is going to give an account to him, every person on the planet. He is Lord. And as Christians, let's be ready to give him a relatively good account when we stand before him. I want to hear the beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. What about you? Let's go further into Moses' sermon. Let's look at the second of the Lord's mighty acts that his people might give him praise. And the ratio was 10 to 1. This is how many gods Yahweh defeated in order to take his people out of Egypt. Let's read verse 34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Now, we know the story, don't we? Every one of the plagues foisted upon Egypt was a judgment upon one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. 
And when the Lord's angel killed the God next in line to sit on Pharaoh's throne, his own boy, Pharaoh had enough. He sent Israel away, just as the Lord told Moses that he would. But that was only part one, wasn't it? Here's part two. Part two is when Pharaoh came to his senses, as it were, and went after God's people. Pharaoh wanted his workforce back in spite of the Lord completely destroying Egypt with the plagues. What did Pharaoh have left after the Lord got finished judging Egypt and their gods? Nothing left. So we have a battle. (laughs) I love this. Pharaoh, who considered himself a god, and Yahweh. The prize for the winner? The people of Israel. The place for the showdown? The Red Sea. Guess who won? (laughs) The true and living God pulverized the Egyptian gods. Indeed, by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, and by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, and the great deeds of terror. What other God would or could do that? But why would the Lord do that? Why would he intrude, as it were, into Egypt and retrieve a nation? Because this nation was not just any people. This nation was Yahweh's people. God, the ever-faithful one, made a promise to Abraham. And when the time was right, he delivered them. Simple, but as powerful and almighty as that. But let's step back a little bit and take a bigger picture, a bigger, a, a big picture look at what Moses told Israel. Yahweh, as their king, proved himself faithful because God acted in history. See, God, Moses said, can be trusted because of his actions. The very reason they were on the east side of the Jordan River with all the million or so Israelites standing before Moses on that day was because of what God did. He alone delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. He led his now freed, redeemed people to enter the promised land. And how significant is this? Yahweh is the living God. He draws near to his people. He acts on behalf of and glorifies himself through his people. And what does this mean for all of his people down through the ages to include us here today? Simply but profoundly, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. God promised the world a savior, his Messiah. He backed up his promise, how? By an action. At the right time, God sent his son, Emmanuel, God with us. At the right time, God gave his son the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What God is there who would or could provide salvation for humanity by sending a son to pay the penalty for our sin? None other than the Lord Almighty, the ever-faithful one, maker of heaven and earth. Now, in your life and mine, God acts in the now. Tell me, as you and I look around what we see in the creation. We really believe that all this came about as a matter of time plus chance plus matter. Really? <laughs> Consider our bodies. We did not get here by any evolutionary process. And lo and behold, according to the latest studies that just came out of Israel, our 
natural immune system is better than the COVID shot by about 15 times. And it lasts for a long time. And this only verifies what we've known for a long time. One prominent doctor says, what would be shocking is if our natural immune system would not strongly build up immunity against COVID. In other words, the Lord built into our bodies an amazing way to fight off diseases of many kinds. But what about our ability to think or deliberately move our body parts or husbands and wives having children or a whole host of things that we take for granted? The very air we breathe has to be a precise amount of oxygen. The electrical impulses that keep our hearts beating, the ability to create things, relationships we have with others, an infinite number of things and a variety of things pertaining to us, and we think all this just happened? Hebrews 11.3 reminds us, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God is here. He's acting right now. And let's not forget the Lord who does perform actual miracles in our day. He suspends the laws of nature at times, doesn't he? And these laws were laws that he himself created to accomplish his purposes. And we can celebrate, can't we, that our God only not only says things to us, but he does things to us and for us. To God be the glory. So let's now look at what motivated the Lord to do those two things that he just described in verses 39, or 35 to 39. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, that there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with their, by his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Moses underscored here that the Lord is God. Israel was to worship and serve him alone. And notice how Moses repeats himself at the beginning and at the end of these verses. What did he say? That the Lord is God. There is no other. As we said today in Bible Fellowship, the good rule of Bible study, right? If God says it once, Scripture records it once, it's, it's important. If he records it twice, it's really important, right? And so what's recorded here? The Lord is God and there is no other. So Israel, sit up, take notice. This is really important. And so here's where Mike Heiser's teaching comes in, as I have introduced a little bit to you over the, over the months. If we get the wrong idea here, we could conclude something far different than what Moses was communicating to his people over this very important truth of the nature of God. We just read that there is no other God besides Yahweh. But why would Yahweh then tell his people in the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me or literally besides me? 
So there's no other God and have no other gods before me. Is there a contradiction here? Heiser's take about this is simple. Moses is not talking about the non-existence of other gods. Rather, the issue is one of incomparability. In other words, there is nothing or no one who compares with Yahweh. This includes all the beings called God, small g, throughout Scripture, because we know this. Over and over again, Scripture records God's here, God's there. This includes all beings called God. The Bible tells us in many places that the heavenly beings, gods with small g, actually worship Yahweh. And so I want us to, to see this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. So please turn with me there. Nehemiah chapter 6. Or just keep reading on, the, on your uh, manuscript, either one. But we need to see these words. Nehemiah in his prayer says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So why did the Lord come near Israel? Why did the Lord deliver them from Egypt? And the short answer was to discipline them, literally to teach them. This word discipline doesn't mean to punish. This word means to teach in large measure. To teach them that there is no one like the Lord. No God but Yahweh is worthy to be worshipped and served. No small g God can be or is compared to Yahweh in any way, shape, or form. That's the point here that Moses is making. So what else motivated the Lord to do what he did? Yahweh loved Israel and chose them to be his people. Let's look at verse 37 again. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Did you notice how Moses put together two words? Love and choice. Love and choice, or love and choose. They go together like a hand in a glove. Love is the common Hebrew word, which includes affection here. And so God's, God's love for his people is a warm, relational kind of love that he has. And, you know, we do take it for granted, don't we? that love and choice go together in any love-based relationship. It can be as superficial as going to PetSmart and picking out a dog, right? And, and the song, How Much Is That Dog in the Window, kind of comes to mind here. Or it could be on one's wedding day, standing before the one who does the officiating. And when they're doing that, what are they saying to one another, especially to the groom, for example? The groom says to his bride, in essence, out of all the billions of women in the world, I choose you to spend the rest of my life with. I did that with my beloved over 40 years ago. And by God's grace, I have every confidence that we're going to go the distance. But on the human level, our marriage has gone the distance so far, not because of the one decision I made to marry her in April 5th, 1980. And it wasn't only because of the one decision Kitty made with me to marry me on that day. No, it's been the multiplied thousands of choices that we have made together to live out that initial choice as husband and wife since our wedding day. The Lord set his love on Abraham 
and his descendants and chose them out of all the nations and proved it by the untold number of choices to prove that he loved them since that day. Remember what we just read in verse 38. Not only has the Lord given to his people and going to give to his people the land of promise, he already began to do this. Give them land on the east side of the Jordan River. Remember the Sihak campaign a couple weeks ago where the Lord empowered his soldiers to dispatch two city-state nations, Sihon of Eshbog, or Hesh, Heshbon and Og of Bashan. Now, for us as Christians, it's the same way. If you are a Christian today, it is in part because you chose to follow him. Now, this choice was not made in a vacuum. It was made because the Lord first reached out to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he showed you your need for him. And so I want us to turn to, uh, to, John, or to uh, John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11, to see this teaching that the Lord gave his disciples, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was going to do. So John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11. When the Lord Jesus observed his last meal with his men, he taught them about the Holy Spirit. And so he says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world because or concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. And what is that? That's the sin of unbelief. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. It's righteousness by faith. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And all those who side with the ruler of this world will be judged as well. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the evangelizing as we speak. Every person on the planet, he's doing that with. And so the Lord made the first move toward you, called you to salvation, and drew you to himself, just like he's doing to everybody right now. Because it's not his will that anybody perish, but all of us to come to repentance. And as a Christian, we responded by repentance and belief in the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. That's how we became a Christian. And now that as a Christian, what has happened? You have validated that initial choice every day since you become a Christian by those choices you've made to follow him, saying yes to Jesus every time he wants something from you and to obey his commands. Tragically, though, we fail, don't we? We fail the Lord oftentimes. But there is forgiveness with God. The glorious news is that God, who's ever faithful, is faithful to you and to me. To God be the glory. And now let me remind us of what I hinted at a moment ago. As Moses declares in verse 40 of the only proper response of the Lord's people to his greatness and his goodness. It is obedience wholeheartedly. Not just going through the motions. Wholehearted obedience is what he wants. But amazingly, when we do this, what happens? The Lord blesses us. As we obey, he blesses us. He says, therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, 
and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. In short, it's Nike theology, isn't it? What is that? Just do it. Is it hard, Greg, to obey the Lord? Well, we have a, we have a struggle, but the Holy Spirit living within us enables us to do this, keeps us faithful to Him. We do it because He loved us first. The Lord loved His people, and then in response, they were to obey Him. That kind of sounds like New Testament theology, doesn't it? 1 John 4.19 says, we love, why? Because He first loved us. When God's people render heartfelt obedience to His ways, He blesses them and members of the household. And that's true whether it was Israel back in the day or in our day. Now, of course, for Israel, there was that added bonus, as it were, of the land because that was the fulfillment of promise that he made to the ancestors of those who were standing right before Moses that day. And as it was with Israel, so it is with us. We show the Lord that we love him by doing what he says. So let me encourage you. If you haven't memorized and meditated on John 14, 21, I encourage you to do that. Because John 14, 21 is the key to our relationship with the Lord. It is the very core of why we obey Him. The Lord doesn't want us just to obey Him out of rote. He doesn't want us just to obey Him because, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. No, John 14, 21 says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, if you want to get close with the Lord, what do you do? Obey the Lord. Why? Because He loved you first. And in obedience, we're showing the Lord that we love Him. And finally, let me summarize verses 41 to 43. Moses set aside three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan River, outside of the Promised Land. Justice and protection was the name of the game here. These cities were designed as safe havens where people who accidentally killed someone, spelled as not premeditated murder, could go while the family members cooled off. In other words, there was no vigilantism in Israel. All things must be done decently and in order among God's people under the lordship of Yahweh. When the Israelites finally did take the land, God directed them to add three more cities of refuge, again, for the same reasons. And so we can praise God for His justice given through His people obeying His rules for their good and for His glory. And so again, what can we say to all of this? To God be the glory. Great things He has done. And so let's finish out our message today. Full of praise to the Lord for all of His goodness and greatness to go through the rest of this incredible message that our brother Shadrach and Meshach, had, had done. For our corporate prayer, let's read the all part together. My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. 
He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Well, my king is the king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's a king of kings. He's a Lord of lords. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. He had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's, <laughs> and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom altogether, and the power and the glory. All the power belongs to my king. Thine is the power and the glory. We try to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is all his. Yes, thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the evers, then, amen. <laughs> let's pray. Oh, actually we said let's praise. Our God and Father, it's a privilege to be part of the family. It's a privilege to be part of the kingdom because you're a king. Lord Jesus, you're a king of kings and you're Lord of lords. We rehearse today in this scripture, what Moses was saying of what you did and why you did it. We thank you, Lord, that you appeared to your people. You came up close and personal to them because you wanted to be there. Lord, you, you pulled your people out of slavery out of Egypt because they were your people. And Lord Jesus, when you came to earth and you lived a perfect life and you died on the cross for our sins, and you bore our sins upon your body on the tree. And you said, it is finished. You went through all of that so that we can be close to you and you can be close to us. Lord God, we stand in awe and are amazed at what you have done and who you are. And Lord, even as, we, as our brother had said, you're indescribable. How can we describe you? We can't. We just content ourselves with what your word says. And to somehow use those words in a heartfelt way that we might give you the praise. And Lord, you told us also in your word how we can love you. And that is through heartfelt obedience. Lord, we don't want to just be religious folk. We just don't want to be here on Sunday mornings checking our little box and going about our business. Lord, we want to live in your presence and enjoying your presence, glorifying you now and forevermore. Lord, our heart's desire is that we would make these choices day in and day out so that when we stand before you on that day, we'll be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Father, there are those within the sound of my voice I know who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray that today might be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up their eyes and soften their hearts and open up their ears that, Lord Jesus, you may reveal to them who you really are. And we ask God that you would save them today for your sake, Lord Jesus. 
And we now ask, Lord, as we turn our attention to our giving and to our singing, may these be true acts of worship because we love you, because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.